Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and we are going to talk to the authors of Grandstanding, The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk. This is a fantastic book that I recommend for a number of reasons. If you're on social media, this is not going to be news to many of you, but getting into what is grandstanding, how do we do it, how do we you know, see it and call it out, or should we even call it out, is what we're going to talk about today. And I have the authors on with us today. So I'm Justin Tosi. I'm an assistant professor of philosophy at Texas Tech University, where I write about moral, social, political, and legal philosophy. I'm Brandon Warmke. I'm assistant professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. I mostly work in uh, moral philosophy, moral psychology, social philosophy. Great, guys. Thanks for joining our podcast today. So when I saw the title of your book and, you know, before it came out and it really, when, you know, arrived at my doorstep, I had this idea in my mind about what grandstanding was. And I'll discuss in a little bit what I thought it was and how it relates to some other things. But just give us the lay of the land here. Like, what is grandstanding? So that when we have this conversation or when, we, when other people talk about it, they kind of use the term properly. The basic, uh, the very basic, most simple way of thinking about grandstanding is grandstanding is a contribution to public discourse that treats it as a vanity project. So grandstanders are people who engage in discussions of morality and politics primarily because they want to impress people. They want others to um, think of them as morally enlightened, morally respectable, uh, someone to defer to. The more, slightly more uh, sort of philosophical definition of grandstanding that we give in the book is basically grandstanding has two parts. Uh, grandstanding is saying something in public discourse. So it could be a Facebook post, a, maybe a tweet, maybe a stump speech, uh, maybe a, a mm-hmm. cable news monologue. There's, and, the, and we call that the grandstanding expression. And the grandstanding expression is just motivated in a, in a significant way by what we call the recognition desire. So people have this desire. They want to impress people. Could be a very general desire just to be thought of as morally enlightened or the right side of history. Sometimes the desire is a bit more specific. Maybe you want people to think that you care deeply about the poor or about traditional family values. And so those, those desires, those, those desires for moral, moral recognition are motivating you to say something in public discourse. That's grandstanding. It's a very simple, very simple account that we give in the book. Yeah. So let me give you where I was coming from, as I mentioned earlier. When I think of what happens when people are doing something called virtue signaling, I have in mind the idea that they're looking for recognition that they are virtuous people. And they do that in certain ways. So you you actually talk about this a little bit in the book and how virtue signaling is probably not the best word to use for what you're describing. So maybe you can kind of elaborate on that a little bit. And you can tell me that I'm wrong about what my definition of virtue signaling was too. Yeah, so this is Justin. Uh, Justin may have something to add here. We started writing about this topic, grandstanding, in 2014. We were both PhD students at the University of Arizona, and it seemed to us 
that at the time public discourse was getting more toxic and it also seemed to us that one explanation for why it was getting more toxic is that people seemed to be using their discussions of morality and politics to show off. Mm. And the only term at the time that was in use that we knew of was moral grandstanding. It's a term that actually dates back to the 19th century that has its roots in discussions of baseball. Mm-hmm. And in about a year after we started writing about grandstanding, uh, we noticed people started talking about this term virtue signaling. And that that term started gaining traction in 2015, 2016. And, and so for the, you know, we've been writing about this topic for six years. A lot of responses to our work is, uh, I think, a very common response. And it was your response, which is, oh, well, this, this is just uh, virtue signaling. It's an interesting question why that term caught on. I think it sounds more sciencey and maybe technical and impressive. Maybe ironically, the, the term itself sounds more impressive. Um, the the term virtue signaling. Yeah, the, the term virtue signaling sounds impressive, and the, and the reason is because it borrows some terminology from economics and biology and psychology. The the mm-hmm. the apparatus of signaling. So basically, here's what we say about these two terms. I mean, I think. When most people use the term virtue signaling or when they accuse someone of virtue signaling, in the vast majority of cases, what they have in mind is something very close to what we mean by moral grandstanding. I think that's that's certainly true. It's people using their discussions of morality mm-hmm. and politics to show off. I think that's that's absolutely right. However, as we explain in the book, and and I think if we'd written this section now, we'd probably do it a little differently. I mean, we we wrote this, you know, we submitted the manuscript over a year ago, actually. The term itself can be very misleading. And here's just a couple of reasons for that. So signaling as just a phenomenon in the world is ubiquitous. Um, mm-hmm. So you you wait in line at the post office and don't cut in front of someone. Well, that that signals something about you. Whether you're or stand trying- six feet away. Or stand six yeah. feet away. Yeah, that 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 signals something about you. Now, whether you're trying to do it or not, um, it signals that you're conscientious, right? That you're that you're going to wait for other people, right? That you that you're someone who can be trusted. And so, signaling as as the term is used in say biology or psychology or economics doesn't pick out what we would describe as an intentional use of language language especially, to show off how good you are. And that's because signaling doesn't have to use language. So, you know, signaling is ubiquitous, right? It's something that you can do even when you're not thinking about it, when you're not trying, when you don't want to impress people, right? Signaling is just a ubiquitous feature of human social life. What we have in mind with grandstanding is something that is more intentional. And and the reason why this gets confused is because people, often people will defend virtue signaling and they'll say something like, look, how, how could you possibly think it's wrong to be seen doing something virtuous? <laughs> and, mm, okay. um, and so we don't have a problem. I mean, obviously, we don't have a problem with the mere fact of doing something virtuous in public and being seen, right? That's, not, that's clearly not what we're focusing in on yeah, in, right. you know, with the book. What we have in mind is something like an intentional behavior that is aimed at a certain kind of recognition. And in the book, we go into a number of other problems with the term, but that's, in a way, that's the big one is that, is that virtue signaling as a term is too broad and it's, Mm -hmm. it can be, it admits of too much confusion to pick out the very specific kind of linguistic phenomenon that we're interested in. So the grandstanding aspect would be someone saying, look at my signal. 
It isn't, it isn't that. So it isn't just that you are drawing attention to yourself, uh, although maybe you're more likely uh, to do that if you're grandstanding. What makes it grandstanding is that it's motivated, so like in your own psychology, in your own head, it's motivated by wanting attention. Mm. So the place that where I think a lot of people go wrong here is they want uh, a phenomenon that they can just like look at a bit of text or, you know, see a, a very short video clip of, of like any random person and say, aha, that's grandstanding or that's virtue signaling. But it doesn't really work that way uh, in our view. That, so in our view, that's a little bit like trying to just look at, you know, a, a piece of text removed completely from broader context and, and being able to say, aha, that's lying. Right. So the reason it doesn't work that way is that just like lying, grandstanding has this intentional component. So in order to lie, it isn't just that you have to say something false or mislead someone. You have to do so intentionally. So in order to know whether someone's lying, you need to know what they know. Like, do they actually know that they're saying something false? Mm, yeah. Are they trying to mislead someone? And it's the same with grandstanding. So you have to know, I mean, not only are they using moral talk, right? They're doing so with this one goal in mind. So sometimes, you know, we, we might be pretty confident. We can, we can look at a piece in t- uh, of text and say, oh, that's, you know, that's so over the top. What's this person doing? But generally, uh, in order to, to really be confident, I, I think you need to know like a lot about the person. You need to know, do they talk this way a lot? Are they very often making moral talk about them? Um, are they actually uh, a kind of self-promoting person? Um, because the, you know these are the things that will actually give you good evidence uh, of mm-hmm. of what they're up to when they're engaging in moral talk. So we don't, you know, the thing that that drives us maybe the most crazy, or at least me, I shouldn't speak for Brandon, uh, is you know people look at this project and they say, well, I mean, this is so ridiculous. These guys are using moral talk to criticize other people for using moral talk. But that's not what we're doing. Did uh, you actually get that criticism? Like yes. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, the, it's a, that's it's the, pretty common. It's the pretty go-to, common. I thought about this for 10 seconds, and I know better than you. Uh, really? Reply I just, I never had that thought. I was just... <laughs> Well, I always thought, like, is, oh, well, this is a book and now analyzing it and being so that, you know, somewhat yeah, circumspect about it. So that speaks well of you. Uh, yeah, yeah, but that's, that's you know, to your virtue. How do you, uh, yeah, well, yeah, I wanted was, you to know that, so I guess I just. <laughs> it was one of the very first. It was one of the very first public philosophical criticisms of of you know we wrote this original paper that came out in 2016, and the original criticism of the of the paper was. We'll look at these guys criticizing grandstanding by grandstanding, and uh, they're okay. they're using wow. moral talk in just the same way that they condemn. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean the virtue signaling stuff in a way, like you know, it's fine. <laughs> uh, one, you know, another reason we avoid the term is because it's become politicized. And then also, there's this debate now. Like you talk, you hear people say, talk, you know, talk about vice signaling. So right, now right. we're going to get into a discussion about like. Oh, they're virtue signaling. And someone says, oh, well, the, no, what they're signaling is not actually a virtue. They think it is, but they're actually vice signaling. And now we have this yeah. useless discussion about whether someone is actually signaling a virtue and vice. So yeah, we right. think it's just it's just worth avoiding altogether and just talk about people trying to impress others. So 
terminology aside, I think I think that's a really helpful clarification for me, and I appreciate you know you guys uh, <laughs> spending time on my podcast telling me where where to be more clear in my thinking. I think the word grandstanding does actually convey what you mean way better, for especially than the reasons you just mentioned. But it does seem to me that this whole thing hinges on understanding somebody's motivation in something. And on the one hand, we would all say, do you, th-, you know, if you surveyed everybody in the United States, you would, you could say probably 100% of people would answer. I believe that moral grandstanding does happen, that some people hmm. do it, right? Like 100% would say, well, of course people do it. At the same time, how do you actually know if that's what people are doing? I mean, you used Harvey Weinstein as a sort of example, and it seemed very clear based on what you were saying. But some cases aren't so clear. So what's the, there's a lot of ambiguity about whether or not you can even identify it, even though we all know it exists. Yeah. Yeah, we use three sources of evidence. So one is people just telling us that they've done it. <laughs> um, <laughs> people who say, yeah, you know, I used to, I used to do this a lot, or I still do this a lot, or it's really a struggle for me. I mean, that, and that actually happens quite a bit. The second source of evidence is general facts about human psychology. So we know that most people think really highly of themselves morally. We know that most people engage in what psychologists call impression management. They want others to think of them as they think of themselves. And we know that status seeking and social comparison are very common human motives that drive a lot of our behavior. It's why people brag. It's why people uh, try to show off in general. And so, you know, our view is like, well, just think about the general human psychology. Like we know people brag. We know that people are selfish and are often in many areas of their lives narcissistic. Um, it would be a shocking coincidence if moral discussions were the only place this behavior was not common. I mean, that would be like an incredible, I mean, that, that would just be amazing. It would be so really nice. Second. Yeah. <laughs> it would be amazing. Yeah. It would be, it would be amazing in that way too. Yeah. The third, the third source of evidence is that um, over the past uh, about three years, we've conducted seven studies with over 6,000 participants with a uh, empirical psychologist uh, and colleague of mine, Josh Grubbs. And what we have found is, so we created this grandstanding scale, this motivations for grandstanding. And what we found is grandstanding is quite common. At, at least grandstanding for certain kinds of, for certain kinds of social status are very common. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, so I, I think those three things combined, we think provide pretty strong evidence that people grandstand. And, and in fact, we think that the burden would be on those who who deny that it happens. Now, there's an t- entirely separate question about when to know whether someone's grandstanding and how to identify it. But, you know, as we argue in the book, you know, that's in a way the wrong question to ask. Hmm. Shouldn't we want people to think well of us? I mean, it seems to me that some grandstanding could be just sort of a natural part of what it takes to communicate who you are. You know, like politicians almost can't get around it because, you know, I don't know certain politicians. There's about three politicians that I have pretty warm feelings about with respect to like, oh, well, those are, you know, stand-up characters. They voted the way that I would want them to vote. And they're not even people I can even vote for. So, you know, outside of that, I mean, and that's extremely rare to know a politician really well. Like, don't people like politicians need to promote themselves? Or, or am I not thinking about that quite right? Yeah. So one of the things that we point out in the book uh, is that I mean, you're right. Politicians do engage in probably more grandstanding than than the average person, or at least they used to. I don't know about anymore. Um, but they have stronger incentives than we do. So their livelihood is tied up 
in whether people trust them, whether people think that they represent their values. So when we demand of, of politicians uh, that they show us that they share our values, that they show us that they are good people, we incentivize them to act in ways uh, that are not really so innocent. So, I mean, we talk about things uh, that prob- social problems that come uh, from normal people engaging in grandstanding too, uh, in, in the book that we can, we can talk more about. But in politics, you know, it ends up being that it isn't just we get politicians, you know, giving stump speeches that refer to values that, that their constituents like uh, or that they vote in ways that are consistent with their constituents' values. Those things seem fine. The problem is that we also incentivize politicians to dig in uh, in their positions and, and never compromise. Um, so there's psychological evidence that we punish people really severely, at least in our judgments of them, when they take a moral stance and then change it, at least uh, from our perception of things. So when we encourage politicians to signal you know, very clearly and strongly uh, what their values are and take very firm moral positions, we make it more difficult for them to compromise when it turns out that we can't get hmm. our first choice and they can't get exactly the policy that we want them uh, to get. So we, uh, in other words, are ourselves kind of responsible uh, for the lack of bipartisanship in, in the U.S. legislature, for instance. Another thing that goes wrong is we make politicians want to support policies that favor in a, in a ham-fisted way our values, that, that express our values. Uh, so just to take a, a pretty uh, uncontroversial example, especially for maybe your listeners, Doug, um, rent control. I mean, who doesn't like the idea of people being able to afford housing? So mm-hmm. when that becomes you know, a hot button issue, when people are worried that the rent is too high, um, we get politicians saying, well, of course, I mean, I care about these people who can't make their rent, you know, who are struggling to, to get ahead in life, we should have rent control. But of course, every student of basic economics knows uh, this is a terrible idea that backfires. Uh, what it does is just result in housing shortages and uh, a decline in the quality of housing because landlords then have no incentive uh, to invest in housing. They have no incentive to, uh, or at least lowered incentive to construct new housing. Uh, so what you get that then is an expressive policy. So one that signals that the person who favors the policy has a certain value that doesn't work. So in other words, by uh, incentivizing politicians to do what sounds, you know, on the face of it, like pretty innocent stuff, just show people your, mm-hmm. your heart's in the right place. Uh, we get pretty terrible consequences. It seems like the loop of feedback just makes things worse and worse. I think we'll probably talk about that a little bit later. Mm. And I think it's pretty clear that it happens in politics. But are there other areas that individuals should be sort of concerned? Oh, hey, this is probably happening, you know, at my workplace or uh, it's not pointing out something that's not so obvious. Uh, Facebook, um, (laughs) Twitter, like, you know, social media is, you know, rife with it. But is there ways that we can like sort of identify it on like less political public areas? I think one of the places that you probably see a lot of grandstanding, I mean, this is, this is trite, but is, is on social media. So, so yeah, suppose you can't tell with much certainty whether someone is grandstanding. 
it still might be helpful to know in general what it looks like. Mm -hmm. So for example, lots of grandstanding takes the form of social pylons, especially when in the, when the case of, you know, someone does something wrong or Mm. maybe does something wrong. And then, you know, a bunch of people engage in a social pylon to show they're on the right side of history. They express their, express their commitment to a value or a tribe by joining in on this massive social pylon. Some grandstanding takes the form of what we call ramping up in the book, which is, which, you know, uh, Doug, you might say, well, actually you you probably wouldn't say this, but you might say something like, uh, you know, if you really care about the poor, we should have a $15 minimum wage. And then I chime in and I say, no, are you kidding? If you really care about justice and the poor, you would support $20 minimum wage, Mm -hmm. uh, $20 per hour minimum wage. So there's, Often grandstanding can take a form of a kind of moral arms race where you have people trying to outdo each other to preserve a vision of themselves and to the group as caring deeply about some some value. It often takes the form of what we call trumping up, which is kind of like a hyperactic a hyperactive ethic or a a you know moralizing where you're sort of looking for things, you're actively looking for things that you can call wrongdoing to accuse people of. So the idea here yeah. is that, you know, the, the things that fall below the moral radar of the hoi polloi don't, don't fall the, below the radar of the, of the astute grandstander. Some grandstanding mm. takes the form of outrage exhaustion. I mean, we know that outrage is a reliable signal of moral convictions. So if you want to, you know, if you want to signal that you're deeply morally convicted about something, outrage is a, is a perfectly fine way to do that. So grandstanders exploit this sort of social understanding of outrage and what, what message it sends. And then finally, grandstanders often engage in what we call dismissiveness, um, where they'll say things like, you know, if you can't see that this is true, then I am not going to explain it to you. Go educate yourself. Right. right. And, you know, and the, and the, and the implication is that like, I, I shouldn't have to explain it to you. And even if I did, you wouldn't understand it because you're so benighted. Or and the so really of, brief one, you know, somebody just does a, a, a name and say, look it up. <laughs> yeah, look it up. Yeah. It's like, do better. Yes. Yeah. Uh, oh. Do better. Yeah. So there, there's a kind of dismissiveness. So those are all, look, those are not foolproof tests because yeah, there are right. perfectly innocent ways of engaging in moral talk that can resemble each of those ways that grandstanding can be expressed. Yeah. But, but, I think it it can help to give a kind of field guide or roadmap to how grandstanding often looks. I mean, look, you said earlier, you know, do we want people to like us? You know, isn't it good to be well liked? And, and I think, yeah, it's, it's perfectly fine. And there are more or less innocent ways of wanting to be liked. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you don't, you don't go to dinner and be like, brag about your income or brag about where you got your degree or like how beautiful your spouse is. I mean, so there are some ways of going about doing things that might, lead people to believe that you are trustworthy and a good person. Yeah. And then there are things that we all find pretty gauche. And in our view is that grandstanding is not just gauche. It's not just annoying, but for lots of reasons, it's morally bad and we should avoid it. Yeah. Okay. Just for uh, example here, I want to know what's happening. So, you know, the whole $15, no, you should do $20 minimum wage. And what my response would be, if you really care about the poor, you would abolish the minimum wage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What kind yeah. of grandstanding would I be doing if that were my response? I'm pretty <laughs> sure I'm guilty of that. Well, not re- not well, anytime y- recently, but I probably said that to somebody. You may not be grandstanding. I mean, you might just be. I mean, so there are lots of motivations you might have for engaging in discourse. One of them is you want to help. You care about the truth. You know, those are perfectly innocent reasons to engage in moral discourse. Now, 
one motivation you might have is to try to impress other people. Now, if you're talking to a bunch of you know progressives who really want to raise the minimum wage, they're not going to be impressed, and they may not think very highly of you. And so, you know, it yeah, may it would not, be more for shock value in that regard. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So there's, you know, our, look, our motivations are extremely complex, and mm. not everything that we say in public discourse is going to be grandstanding. That's that's certainly true. Yeah. You know, but look, if you were, you know, palling around with a bunch of libertarians, you know, you could imagine like, well, I don't even think that, you know, you can imagine a kind of arms race among libertarians too, where, you know, you imagine some more extreme policies about, <laughs> about, you know, wage law or reparations or for businesses that have had to pay more than minimum wage. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my word. We go. Now, seriously, have you heard that or are you just like, I haven't, but I'm sure. Oh, I will. that's no, a great but, example. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to use that when paper. I'm in a grandstanding evening. There we go. You know, and I'm on Facebook at like 11:30. I'm going to be like, you know what? I'm going to find some way to incorporate reparations for business owners who had to pay minimum wage. <laughs> that's that's really good. Has had enough, folks. Yeah, right. Well, that, honestly, that was really kind of the reason I wanted to segue into the whole like libertarian thing because we're we're sort of like social outcasts. I don't know where you guys are on the political spectrum and for the conversation, it's not really important. We often, libertarians, want to be seen. We want to be seen as people who have thought through the issues. We want to be seen as people who have actually studied economics, have a little bit of like maybe even legitimately more knowledge about rent control or minimum wage laws or open borders or whatever it might be. And so it's sometimes difficult to not grandstand by inserting ourselves into a conversation that people are having that is not an intra-libertarian one. And so I, one of the reasons I really enjoyed your book was that it isn't just about pointing fingers at the people doing the grandstanding. It's also about, and you don't like, it's not like a guide, a personal you know, self-help guide, but it's more like, hey, we, we all do it. And for me, I'm a little bit more self-reflective and I'm like, oh my goodness, I do this I've done this in the past two weeks while I was reading your book. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm guilty of this. And so, I mean, I, I don't know. This is like why it's a really relevant topic. And so I would want my listeners to know that this book isn't about how do we, you know, point out the grandstanding of other people because um, we can we can all go to that like most improved unit and that's ourselves and let's let's become better, you know, moral talkers. Yeah, you know, it's so funny that, that you say that, Doug. Uh, one thing that Brandon and I have remarked upon um, is that, you know, a very common reaction we get when, when we tell people that we're working on this is they want to know, all right, how do I find these people? I want to get them, you know? like <laughs> I, I want to be able to spot grandstanders and call them out uh, and and shame them into stopping. Um, and you just have they, to say the enemy is within. <laughs> yeah, right. So, but I mean, that's just it. So it's funny that, that you had this reaction because it's really unusual in our experience for people to to read this and think, like, oh my god, what have I been doing? I, you know, I like this. You know, this describes my. If I really look at myself and you know the cold light of day, this is very often how I engage in, in public moral talk. So you're right. One of the things that we really uh, want people to do uh, is to try to be honest with yourself. Ask yourself, look, if I say this thing and nobody thinks any better of me, so they don't think I'm morally like an impressive person, or maybe if you're worried about uh, 
like some uh, folks in, in the libertarians, you know, what if they don't think I'm like really smart because of this or, or anything like mm. that? So you can grandstand in that way too. It's yeah. not moral grandstanding, but still a, a, a similarly worrisome process. If you, you know, ask yourself, you know, if I got no recognition for this, would I be disappointed? Would I feel like, well, what was the point? Then you should probably be worried, right? Maybe you think, I should sit this one out because I'm not in this for the right reason. I'm not actually trying yeah. to help any, anybody. What I care about, maybe a little bit too much, uh, is how I look and how this will help serve my reputation. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's somebody listening out there to this episode who gets on Facebook or Twitter every day or every other day or at some point and says, how can I impress other people? You know, how can I get on there and, and debate people and win them over and, and show them how much I know? And so I, I really hope that this discussion and then your book will, will kind of help us sort of recognize that in ourselves. Are you throwing uh, subtle shade at your editor again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Hint, hint. <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I Mark messed that up for you. <laughs> Todd, and you like start listening, like listing your listeners. Just like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is I for wish you I guys. had a list of all my listeners because then I'd get right <laughs> to them and, and tell them thank you. <laughs> uh, One thing that I think social media has done is it made it it's made it easy for us to behave like politicians, you know, mm. in the sense that we have a platform because we anybody can get on. I mean, you you quoted somebody who put on Twitter. It's like it's crazy that you know I can type something in this box that could ruin my life. <laughs> um, and I was like, like very few places in most books do I pause and like ponder something, but this was one of those places. I was like, yeah, holy cow, that's a very insight. So, you know, it's very insightful. Mm -hmm. And social media has changed things. And I, and I don't think for the better. And I, what's interesting is that we all complain about how terrible social media is, yet we're all part of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> it well, the people who complain about it that I hear are on social media talking about, you know, Twitter's a dumpster fire and Facebook. Oh, man, I just ignore the arguments on Facebook and this and that. And, you know, everybody uses social media for, for different reasons, not just for discussing moral talk. But how has that changed? I mean, is, have you over the past, let's see, you said you started in about 2014. So in the past six years, has have you observed an evolution of things, of, of phenomenon happening in this regard? I think we've, yeah, I think it's gotten worse even since we started writing about the topic in 2014. I mean, one of the things mm -hmm. that, that we point out in the book, in the preface, is that grandstanding itself is not, I mean, I think on reflection, this is obvious. It's not a new phenomenon. You know the the drive for for status and to impress other people. That's a that's a very basic human um, drive, and I think maybe some cultures are able to sublimate that better than others. But I think at least in our culture, it's the drive is is um, is almost always there for a lot of us. And and I think what social media has done. I mean, just think about a hundred years ago, fifty years ago, to have an audience of ten people. 50 people, you'd have to stay on the street corner, go mm. to a Kiwanis meeting, be a pastor, you know, be a celebrity or be a politician. Like that's basically the only way that you could have an audience of more than a hundred people. Now, you know, any random person can get on Twitter or Facebook and talk to hundreds or thousands or millions of people. And I think, so it's easy, it's easier to have a platform and more people have a platform. So you have this like basic psychological hunger for status and then you have more people on on platforms you're just easier to grandstand and it's harder to avoid it i mean mm -hmm. i even think back to you know so this dates me a little bit 
So let's see. I was in college before Facebook and MySpace, but I I remember the beginning of Facebook and then even towards the end of MySpace. Like if you think back, I, I don't know how old you are, Doug, but you think back to those those times. Like so, I same don't situation. remember. I don't remember anyone on MySpace <laughs> talking about. George Bush. I mean, <laughs> I just don't remember. I just don't remember it. And maybe it, maybe it was there. Maybe but they should have in MySpace would still be around. Maybe, yeah, no, maybe, nobody had right, Frederick right. Douglass in their top eight. <laughs> right, right. I mean, and even the early days of Facebook, I mean, if you look back to your Facebook posts, I mean, if you were to go do this for, for whatever reason, I mean, surely it happened, but it was, I mean, it was not like people were posting 10 times a day about the president. You know, I have lots of academic friends who are like every day, it's like six posts about Trump. And, mm-hmm. and it, so so I think even it's something has changed in the culture, even just in the past 15 years. And even I think since 2014, I mean, I, Justin and I realized back then, you know, to sort of toot our own horn a little bit, I think we were ahead of the curve. I mean, some of the early responses to our paper was like, okay, it's a problem, but like, eh, these, what, what, what are these guys really on about? Mm. Um, but now it's like, it's, I mean, it's probably hard to find someone who doesn't think it's a, this is a serious yeah. problem and that, and that discourse yeah. is not toxic. Yeah. I mean, you know, the early, your experience is very similar to mine. I finished college before Facebook was probably before Zuckerberg was in college. I don't know around that time, but anyway, a lot of the new phenomenon online, all these platforms that people could be part of social media and stuff were very much a new thing. And people were all about what is it? And how do we sort of shape it? I mean, they weren't individually thinking that, but that's sort of like the net experience. Whereas now there's, you know, you people get on Facebook now, like newcomers, oh yeah, I just signed up on Facebook. And they're like, oh my goodness, I had no idea about, you know, how <laughs> terrible my friends were or something like that, you know, I'm just exaggerating Who's signing here, up but, for Facebook? How old, are, now, how old are these you know people? This is a very random aside, but you know what's funny is if you go to facebook.com and you're not logged in, it's got a big thing splash screen there on signing up. And I'm like, isn't everybody signed up by now? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I it's mean, like this little tiny thing at the top that's like sign in. And I'm like, yeah, sign up is really the largest part of your page right now. 20 year olds <laughs> are not signing up for Facebook. I don't think yeah, that's like, true. Yeah. My freshman student, you know, our freshman students are just not on Facebook. They're not, they're on, they're on Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, yep. maybe, maybe Twitter, but they're not on Facebook. I mean, tw- Facebook is something your parents or grandparents do. It's not, yeah. <laughs> I don't know who's 20 and signing up for Facebook, but yeah. There's a I used to think people, I would care. Uh, young people getting like fake Facebook accounts that they use to like throw their parents off of the uh, actually like fun and and bad things that they're doing. But that's about all. That's <laughs> about all I've heard of, of younger. That's yeah, pretty, pretty much. Account. Oh my word! Yeah, just for show. That's crazy. <laughs> it's actually pretty. So, it's actually pretty clever. Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> All right, my kids are not quite there yet, so I'm gonna <laughs> hang on. Don't, let me write this down. Don't give them any ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what's interesting to me is as we're having this conversation, we're all saying, hey, you know, everybody kind of notices that it's happening. And of course, you know, politicians have always done it. It's just the nature of the beast or whatever. What's amazing to me is that apparently it works or, or does it? Like people are still taken in by these they, these ideas of people showing off themselves. So, like, is it really working or is it just making things worse and it feels like it's working, but it's actually really harming us or both? I mean, I think it is a bit of both. I think you're exactly right, Doug. There are psych studies showing uh, that plausibly, like, the reason that we hate hypocrites so much 
is that when someone makes a moral claim, we expect them to like believe it and abide by it. So if we've come to find out that if you know someone is throwing around you know a bunch of moral heavy artillery, uh, but you know they don't actually you know direct directed at themselves, they do whatever they want. Uh, people come to feel sort of hoodwinked by this person. They think, um, what is this guy doing? Like he's giving off the, you know, the signal that uh, he, you know, is on the vanguard of respecting women or, or whatever. Uh, and it ter- turns out not so much. Mm. But then interestingly, if people preface their moral claims, with, you know, look, I'm not perfect. I, I failed in, in this myself. And, but, you know, I think this is the right thing. People uh, are not so bothered by this when they, when they see this person uh, failing to, to abide by the claim, mm-hmm. the moral claims that they subject everyone else to. Um, so I think it's just natural for us to think that when someone makes a moral claim, like it's deeply felt for them. They're motivated by it. Yeah. So this is one really nice question. And I think this is one question that's right for empirical research. I mean, so does grandstanding work? Yes and no. So uh, depends, obviously, on the case. I mean, so why might you think grandstanding works? Well, there's a kind of background assumption in social life that people are as they present themselves to be. And so if someone is presenting themselves in a certain way, there's a kind of default presumption that they are who they say they are. So if someone presents themselves as caring deeply for the poor, there's a kind of default presumption in favor of that being true. So that's why you might think grandstanding works. But there are, I think, criteria or, or maybe things can, that can affect the situation that, that determine whether your grandstanding works. So one of them is, as, as Justin pointed out, if, if people already know that you're not a great person, your grandstanding is not going to be effective. So, you know, in the book, we talk about this, this letter from Harvey Weinstein after he got accused of all this terrible stuff. He goes on about how he cares about women and blah, blah, blah. No one was taken in by the act. I mean, from the, from the political right to the to the left, no one was impressed by this. And that's because we all knew it was, it was baloney, right? It was, he was just grandstanding. The other thing that can determine whether your grandstanding is successful or not is, is um, who your audience is. So one of the clearest examples of this, and we discussed this in the book, is a Golden Globe speech that Meryl Streep gave a few years ago about, hmm. in part, about Trump, where she said, you know, she's, she begins by saying, excuse me, I, you know, I'm sorry, I, I lost my voice in screaming and lamentation this week. And if you look at like left Twitter and like celebrity responses, like everyone in the room, I mean, Meryl Streep is, you know, abroad to be emulated when, you know, one celebrity, you know, tweeted, this is, she's amazing. Right. And you look at the response from the, from the right. And they were like, oh, she's just grandstanding. You know, of course she didn't, she wasn't screaming in lamentation that week. So, so I think depending on who you are, I think you're more inclined to be taken in by someone's grandstanding if they agree with you, right? If they're part of your tribe. One thing that I've often thought about when it comes to language, whether whether it's, you know, biblical interpretation or interpreting just anybody speaking or writing, is what is being meant by what is being said and like what's being implied. And when we use speech, we're not just writing words, we're not just saying words, we're actually doing something. And I think that's a, a something that a lot of people miss out on is and and we don't we don't actually not catch it we just don't in, analyze language that way very very often where when someone is saying something take trump for instance uh there was something that he said a couple of weeks ago and it had to do i think it had to do with businesses or the shutdown or whatever and in context apparently he was telling a joke that just tended to fall flat and 
when I saw it in the first headline that I saw it, I was a little, I mean, maybe not outraged, but like a little like, what? He said that? Really? And then when I actually went and looked at it, I was like, oh, he was telling a joke that didn't work. And so it's a very different thing to literally quote somebody versus, oh, if you heard them, it would either come off differently or in a, in a different context, you kind of realize that they're kind of doing something with their speech, whether it's motivation or whether it's like encouraging somebody or whatever it might be. So it seems like context plays a big role in whether we're identifying grandstanding or not. Yeah, one of the things we talk about in the book is that grandstanders rarely, I mean, rarely do you see someone like in public discourse just come out and say something like, I care the most about the poor. <laughs> um, <laughs> or I, of all of you, I care the most about this country. I mean, you might see that, but it's very rare. And the reason is because <laughs> that kind of obvious self-promotion is both transparent and widely agreed to be gauche, right? That's just that's just not how you yeah. talk about things. So what grandstanders do is they they use this indirect language. So indirect language is where, you know, what you, there's, there, you know, as you point out, there's like what you say and there's what you imply. So, you know, a police officer pulls you over, you know, gives you a ticket and you say, uh, you know, officer, isn't, isn't there some other way that, that we could deal with this? And now, strictly speaking, you're just asking, is there another way to deal with this? But what's being implied is, would you be willing to take a bribe? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So this this kind of indirect speech is ubiquitous. And one one reason we engage in ubiquitous speech is to hide our true intentions and to have plausible deniability. And this is what grandstanders do. So if you and this is why grandstanding is so hard to detect often is because if you simply look at what someone says without context, without knowing what's in their head, it's often innocent. I mean, it might be hyperbolic, but it's often, you know, morally upright. It's on all fours, you know, seems, seems fine. But what often grandstanders are doing is they're sort of, they're manipulating language in this way because they know that if they just came out and said what they wanted from other people, people's alarms would, would go off. Yeah. Right. So are you guys optimistic about the future? I mean, is your, your book is, uh, (laughs) is out now and it's only, it's too early to tell whether or not it's going to change the tide. Um, but like what, (laughs) <laughs> what are the prospects here? Like, how do we even change this tide, <laughs> if you will? Yeah, good. Uh, so one thing that we, maybe the main thing that we stress is this isn't a problem that is best addressed by by tackling grandstanding head on. So you shouldn't go around trying to identify grandstanders and then accusing them, blaming them of grandstanding, because then the discussion just turns into what exactly what they want, uh, just a, a debate that's about whether they're good people, uh, and people will generally give them the benefit of the doubt, uh, and you know, then they'll they'll get the recognition that that they crave. So don't go around blaming people. Uh, instead, you should work on yourself. Uh, so, as I said earlier, ask yourself: Am you know, if I say this thing that I'm thinking about saying, uh, am I trying to help other people? Am I actually trying to help other people get at the truth or, or to behave better? Uh, or am I hoping that people will think better of me? And, you know, if, if you kind of find that, oh, you know, actually I am kind of just hoping that I, that I get a bunch of likes uh, from this, then, then probably keep your thoughts to yourself and, and maybe find some better way to, to direct your energy. Go actually do something that is constructive and, and positive in the world that really does help other people. Now, as to your point about whether we should be optimistic, what Brandon and I kind of hope for is that grandstanding will eventually come to be seen as just gauche. 
or just something that's kind of shameful and embarrassing, like, oh, God, like, we know what you're doing. Like, come on, don't do it. Or even better yet, the people, you know, lay awake thrashing in bed and like, oh, why did I say that? It was so, you know, like, <laughs> like some of us do about everything. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, you might uh, uh, sort of look at the way things are and think this is impossible. Um, but I think we actually could get to a point where people regard grandstanding as, as shameful. So if, if we just don't give people the attention that they want, then they might come to see it as just not worth bothering because it's embarrassing when you say mm-hmm. something and, and don't get a bunch of likes. So the thing that that we like to tell people is if you look at etiquette guides from the Middle Ages – You'll see things like, you know, don't blow your nose into the tablecloth. Don't <laughs> gnaw on a bone of meat and then put it back in the serving dish with the rest of the meat. Th- you know, things that like maybe someone told you something like this when you were like three or four years old, right? Right. And yeah. at the time, this is written for pe- educated people who are like entering high society who have reason to, <laughs> to want to get these things right. Um, and now it's, it's just commonplace. Um, so, the lesson to take from this, the hopeful lesson, uh, is that you know these are things that maybe to people at the time look like we're never going to get all these idiots on on the same page about not Stop doing these things. Back into the yeah, right. Because <laughs> it's, it's it's like why wouldn't I? Right. I mean, I've got a thing in my hand. I don't want it. Like I'm just going to put it. You know, the the easiest place. Right. I got to blow my, my nose. My, I, yeah. yeah. I got. I got. I got to wipe my mouth right on my here. shirt. I got a tablecloth. Exactly. Yeah. So you know. It took hundreds of, well, probably actually didn't take hundreds of years. Um, but, you know, at least hundreds of years later, it's like unthinkable that you would see people behaving in, in any of those ways in any civilized setting. Uh, so, hey, we might not know exactly uh, how, how to get there with grandstanding, but norms do change. Uh, and they can in, in cases of how we use moral talk, uh, just like they can in, in matters of table manners. Well, you, you've certainly set yourself up for never knowing whether or not you're succeeding. <laughs> yeah, because we're dealing with we, like you we know your great like great grandkids. Way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of like it that like way. To shield ourselves from these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that's okay. I think the more people we try to influence, I mean, not just you know improve ourselves, but improve the people around us that are sort of within our sphere of influence. That that doesn't require grandstanding to influence. You know, like for me, my kids, right? And we always say no one likes a show off. I don't yeah. often have to tell my kids that way, that because uh, they're introverts just like me. And so, you know, we don't quite have that problem in my family, but I was told that as a kid around other people. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate this conversation. I had a blast. And if people want to find you online, or do you blog anywhere? Is there online location to, to locate either of you? At an undisclosed location on Twitter... I, uh, I I I tweet. I I'm at Brandon Wormke. Uh, we do have a blog at Psychology Today, but we rarely post there. Justin's on Twitter too. Yep. Cool. Yeah, on Twitter's well, good. So we will we will stalk you and make sure that you're not grandstanding. We'll call you out on it. How about that? Yeah, that's that's the trick with giving people your Twitter handle after you talk about grandstanding. It's like, man, I really got to be careful now under the yeah. microscope. Well. Right, but what the thing is is like they're gonna have to like go back and look at how you tweet throughout history before they even call you call you out on it. So you know they can't just pick and choose. Yeah, gotta read. Well, it all. I've often I've often wondered that you know we have this part of the book where we say don't call people out that that people are thinking that we said that so that we don't get accused ourselves of grandstanding. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of um, 
But anyway. Well, that kind of goes back to what we just said. It's like, well, what do you, what exactly are you trying to communicate by saying that? Not just don't ever do it. Like you're trying to say, don't be the kind of person who's not going to succeed anyway at calling people out on it. Like that's one going to not going to work, and second, don't be that guy. Yeah, don't be that guy, right? Or gal, or gal. Good, yeah. good all purpose advice. Yep. Yeah. All right, Doug, guys. Thank, thanks again. Thank you so much. Yep. Yeah, this is really great, Doug. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.